When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think it's been handled very well. The Marines came in. We had some uh, great warriors come in and do a fantastic job. And they were there instantaneously as soon as we heard. This will not be a Benghazi. This is not a Trump rally. Okay. All right. I agree with you, man. I agree. Nice talking to you. Let me be clear. This is about getting to the truth. As Sergeant Joe Friday said in Dragnet, just the facts, man. That's all we want, the facts. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I know you've all been on the edge of your seat, impatient for the first ever evangelicals for Trump rally, but the wait is over. A South Florida megachurch, that's El Rey Jesus, or King Jesus International Ministry, hosts the first evangelicals for Trump rally. As usual, the Trump racket and campaign chose the place most likely to be packed with telegenic Trump supporters. And in this case, with El Rey Jesus, the congregation is largely Hispanic, which could, for a shining moment, conceal the president's cruelty toward Latinx Americans and refugees, which of course involves setting up murderous detention camps, separating children from their parents, and leaving them separated. So since the El Rey Jesus Church was chosen as a safe space for Trump's worshipers, you'd expect the congregants to be thrilled, right? A presidential candidate much less a sitting president, never came to the church I grew up in, uh, even though it's right on the path of anyone touring New Hampshire during the primary. But El Rey Jesus is not exactly excited, even to have a sitting president, because the congregants may or may not support Trump, but some are frankly terrified of him. They're undocumented, and they're openly afraid that the president coming to their church will deport them on the spot. Guillermo Maldonado, the pastor at the church, who has some sick, sketchy, malignant commitments to Christian holy war, prosperity gospel, and speaking in tongues, he loves Trump. Remember, by the way, when you hear evangelicals love Trump, it's people like Maldonado we're talking about, people your Republican pal in Indiana who goes to a Methodist church with the side of evangelicalism would not even recognize as sharing her faith. Just to say this again, speaking in tongues, faith healing, pyramid schemes about prosperity gospel, Rolls Royces and porn stars. Literally, a porn star went to the same unaccredited fraud seminary as Maldonado. There's your evangelicals for Trump. This crowd has got to know the company they're keeping with others who appear on the census with them as evangelicals and are in fact the poster kids for evangelicals for Trump. Ready? Here's that company. Maldonado is a corrupt huckster with views heretical to Christianity, who sometimes sees himself also as not Protestant, but part of a big new Enron religion. But his evangelical congregants are even in a weirder place. They're terrified that they'll be kicked out of this country by the current Republican president if they show up to support him as evangelicals for Trump. So that's what it looks like. And if that 
Evangelicals for Trump scene is not the one your conservative Christian friends and family and mine want to identify with and be part of. They should look to some more mainline institutions. And I'm going to propose mainline Protestantism. The leadership has come out strong for social justice. Presbyterians, American Baptists, Methodist Episcopalians, they went for Trump by a very thin margin in 2016 and have decisively turned on him since. That's one option for ex-evangelicals. Also, the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptists make up the majority of evangelicals, and yet they've protested Pence as a speaker, and they now have a new leadership that takes seriously Me Too claims among Southern Baptists and also advocates for more women and people of color in positions of power. The SBC also wants to make room for Christianity that is, wait for it, not political. There's really good dissent from Trumpism, even at places like Liberty University and the evangelical institution Taylor in Indiana, as much as the top brass might try to repress it. And of course, Christianity Today, which is scoring new subscribers by the minute for coming out against Trump. So there are changes afoot, as usual, in American religion, and we should watch this space and stop repeating Trump's lie that he has all Christians in his thrall. He does not. My guest today never repeats Trump lies and has been holding the president's feet to the fire since before he was elected. He's Aswin Subsong, White House reporter for the Daily Beast, and I'm happy to have him back on Trumpcast. Welcome, Swin. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an eternity. I want to give you some observations I've made about your style and your career in the maybe year and a half since you were on the show. Oh, what? Is this an ambush? Am I, <laughs> am I walking in? It's an intervention. I have your mom here, a couple of cats, and oh, we want no. to say something. Not true. No, just that in the early days, I thought that like other writers for the Daily Beast, you were doing this wonderful thing of sort of filling out our picture with some of the eccentrics and fringe players in and around the West Wing. And that seemed like a great service. But then I slyly realized that these eccentrics are the main event, that when you write about someone like Jenna Ellis, who I'm going to ask you more about, you're really writing about the direction the country's taking. Right. And first of all, thank you so much for saying so. That's far more generous compliment than I deserve. <laughs> when you talk about people who are sort of bit players in Trump world or who you think are bit players, whether it's someone lurking within the administration or mm-hmm. within conservative media such as Fox News or Fox Business or just elsewhere within the broader uh, Trump or pro-Trump orbit, you quickly learn that these people who in say, a Marco Rubio administration or even a Ted Cruz administration would be reduced to bit players, if that. At the very most, that's all they'd be. They'd just be a voice in conservative media or someone howling into the tornado. Yes. But when you dig deeper and deeper into Trump world, you realize that one thing that's unique about this particular Republican president is that's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of people who the president just because of the sort of fixation he has with the fringe right and key figures within it, particularly within conservative media, that he elevates them to the position of essentially presidential advisors. Mm -hmm. Whereas in any other Republican administration of recent memory, such a thing would seem patently absurd and something you'd write as bad satire. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the many examples of this, just so I'm not speaking in complete abstracts to your listeners, is the pro-Trump duo Diamond and Silk. 
Yes. During the 2016 election, they caught Trump's eyes because they started running this vlog that would talk about how Democrats are the real racist and how Trump is the best Republican candidate or any political candidate in their lifetime. They start doing these unhinged TV hits and mm-hmm. YouTube streams mm-hmm. that just seemed like it was a mishmash of pro-Trump subreddits or conservative memes that your grandmother would see on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And there was sort of a dark hilarity to it. Mm-hmm. But at some point during the early part of 2016, they did catch Trump's attention. They started appearing at campaign events with or for Trump. And after he entered the White House, they um, achieved yet more prominence in conservative media in places like Fox News and Fox Nation. And the president kept inviting them to things and to the White House and kept meeting with them privately and would talk about them and their TV hits to people close to him when they weren't around, talking about how much they got it, how right they were about everything, and how they were some of his favorite people to watch on TV just because they were so incredibly zealous about their love for Trump. Mm -hmm. This is sort of one of many examples of a wacky, conservative media addled duo that the president hasn't only promoted their work, but makes a point of meeting with them privately in places like the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever could be said about someone like Senator Cruz or Senator Rubio, there's a good chance they wouldn't be giving this much attention to these sort of creatures within the conservative media sphere. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You, like I did, probably grew up with reality television. And I keep thinking when one of the bit players comes comes center stage, that this White House might have been predicted by someone who, who followed the evolution of the real world and other reality shows. You probably remember that the very first episode of The Real World on MTV featured a race conflict. That was very exciting. <laughs> One of the white Christian participants asked a black woman if she were a drug dealer out of nowhere. And then that got everyone on edge so that the whole, in some ways, watching that series became about waiting for, you know, sitting on this tinderbox and waiting it for it to blow. And I feel that way when I see Diamond and Silk, for example, who have switched Right. They used to give liberal spiels and then they came to prominence by saying this Trump stuff. Um, It's sort of how do you get the camera on you? Then the real world gave way to the surreal life and a spinoff where it was just the eccentrics. And, you know, Trump knows well that getting the Tila Tequilas and the Omarosas, breaking them out from reality TV, the people most kind of mentally addled, sometimes drug addled, the ones who look most cartoonish, the ones who have most criminal record, have proximities to fraud. They're so desperate that they kind of will join this whack pack. So not to just give this totally schematic view, but I think you have tuned in uniquely to these figures who, you know, when they're passing by Trump's office, he's going to ask them in or he sees them in passing on TV. He's going to say she's good. She gets it. The weirder they look, the more racist the things they say, the better bet it is that Trump's going to be all over them. And that's where I want to get to Jenna Ellis. Sure. So you wrote recently about um, this figure who is now increasingly in Trump's inner circle. She seems to have come out of nowhere, but she is a constitutional law attorney, super Christian. She wrote a book about Jesus and the Constitution. And Trump has moved her in closer and closer to the 2020 campaign and to other kinds of advising. I mean, um, she's 
he thinks of her as some kind of accomplished legal mind. So who is she? Well, Jenna Ellis is someone whose current title is senior legal advisor, not just to President Trump, but also to his 2020 campaign. Got it. And it's no exaggeration to say that the reason she was elevated in the last few weeks, I think it was around the time of October or November, is simply because the president started seeing her on TV, specifically on Fox a lot. Right. Before that, she was a member of the Trump 2020 Advisory Board, which is just a fancy title for surrogate who we wanted to give a fancy title and also so they can have it like underneath their talking head when they go on TV or cable news to defend the president. Got it. So the, the reason we kind of note in the story that you're referring to that she came out of nowhere is because when I started seeing her elevated more and more, not just by the campaign, but by President Trump himself, and after I saw that she had said things publicly like she had indeed advised and consulted on that six-page letter that Trump sent to Nancy Pelosi shortly before he was impeached by the House late last year. We started asking numerous people in Trump world, senior administration officials, people in the campaign, et cetera, et cetera, like, do you know Jenna Ellis and what do you think of her? Almost entirely across the board, people said they'd never met her, didn't really know much about her. One person close to Trump told us, and I quote, she literally came out of nowhere. So it was sort of an interesting situation where it was this person who is suddenly poised to become a real serious, perhaps even major player in the Trump universe, who the president just kind of plucked out of obscurity and said, here, here's your, a fancy title of senior legal advisor. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to start consulting you more on impeachment and political issues. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to become, at least on cable news, which is, of course, a universe that the president cares deeply and fervently about, mm-hmm. one of his strongest voices of support. And as you alluded to earlier, her pedigree is, for instance, she used to be a public policy director at the Dobson Institute, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a significant uh, evangelical and Christian right organization. Mm-hmm. She has written for a a variety of conservative publications, including the Washington Examiner, where Mm -hmm. she still contributes blog posts and columns. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a book and has a wellspring of legal thought that she has put to print that, and and I don't want to risk sounding too simplistic about it, Mm -hmm. but it really puts a strong emphasis on that the separation between church and state is essentially a myth. Mm-hmm. and that you cannot write about the Constitution or American secular law without basically crediting Jesus, God, and the New Testament a lot. Right. Which, of course, runs afoul of a lot of long-established legal theory in the country, but it's something that Jenna Ellis has very publicly and very stridently said is 100% wrong if you believe that. I want to ask one thing about that. During the hearings in front of the Congress, I spend some time trying to figure out where Republicans went to law school. And there really are accreditation problems with many of the law schools they make where Michael Cohen went to law school, Cooley said to be the worst law school in the country, look good at least because it has its accreditation. But with Jenna Ellis, I looked her up ready, I have to admit, to pounce on some idea that she'd gone to, you know, Trump University for some mail-away degree. And she actually went to the University of Richmond, where 
people Mm. like James Comey taught for law school. And I was trying to find out how you could possibly get to a constitutional law that says the founders were particularly invested in Jesus by that name and that Jesus must at every turn inform the Constitution. I mean, that how do you come up with that? She's not even at the Federalist Society. She's off in really la-la land. Right. And also another offshoot of that is that, as your listeners can probably guess, given the way she's described her, she doesn't exactly have the most LGBT-friendly mm-hmm. legal analysis out there. Um, as we reported in our mini-profile about Jenna Ellis, mm-hmm. not too long ago, shortly after the uh, Pulse nightclub massacre in Florida, mm-hmm. she wrote a column urging conservatives not to take up the mantle of LGBT rights or solidarity with the uh, gay community. And that was motivated by her perspective, as she said in numerous points of throat clearing, that yes, what happened at Pulse was a tragedy and an atrocity, but the correct response is not for conservatives to start talking about why they should be more friendly to LGBT rights. And her assertion was two wrongs don't make a right. I guess one of the wrongs is being nicer to gay people, Mm. and the other wrong is like a whole bunch of bloodshed in a nightclub one night. Got it. So for all this talk that has happened before and during the Trump presidency about, oh, when it comes to the gays, he's a nicer, tamer, more gentler type of Republican Mm. who isn't as fire-breathingly hostile to gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transsexuals, Mm -hmm. as much as past Republican presidents, that just does not come through both in who he surrounds himself with in terms of Republican power players and also just straight up what policies his administration has carried out, first and foremost, uh, the transgender ban when it comes to the U.S. military. Yes, it is extremely interesting because he's had... Um, further proof that Trump's um, principles are for sale. Um, he's had this... Principles with, like, aggressive bunny ears around them. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. I think in, in that um, now infamous Miss Universe um, pageant in Moscow, Putin had made and done homophobic, violently homophobic things, and there was some recent controversy. And he almost was forced to boycott having it there in Moscow, if I have the details right. But he ended up getting a gay man to perform to sort of placate Americans who might think that he was collaborating, colluding with a uh, homophobic government. And then after Orlando, Trump also said, I remember him painstakingly going through the letters LGBTQ as if they had his support. But now his head is turned by Jenna Ellis and others like her who say that really the way to hold on to conservatives and particularly Christians is to, I don't know what, begin denouncing gay marriage. I mean, is he going to add this to his platform more than just the trans ban in 2020, do you think? Well, I'm not sure how extreme he would go in terms of, like, what is added or not added to the Republican platform Mm -hmm. at, like, the Republican National Convention in Charlotte, especially because those party platforms are oftentimes so utterly meaningless. Yes. But when it comes to is Trump himself personally hostile to gay people, I think that's entirely the wrong question. Mm. Um, Yes, it's true that he did do things like, uh, say, on stage at the 2016 uh, Republican National Convention, 
Um, he, sell- he said something nice about LGBT American citizens. And mm-hmm. when the room cheered, he took a moment out of his speech to say, as a Republican, it's really heartening for me to hear you guys applaud that. Mm-hmm. But like giving him sort of a pat on the head for that sort mm-hmm. of forgets that for many decades, like I'm just thinking of multiple examples, for instance, during the Reagan era, there were definitely people who were friends with the Republican president and um, the higher ups in administration who were gay or openly gay. Mm-hmm. And I'd still identified as hardcore conservatives and Republicans. And and the whole concept of Trump having a couple of gay friends or mm-hmm. gay associates or saying one or two nice words about uh, the LGBT community every once in a blue moon, that's not really new. Mm-hmm. And again, the mistake here is when people sort of ask themselves, oh, is this Republican figure, in this case Donald Trump, pers- have any personal animus towards gay people? That's the wrong question. Just look at who he surrounds himself with and what policies are coming out of the administration. That's mm-hmm. all you need to ask. It doesn't, I mean, yeah. George W. Bush himself urged people to not be really harsh to gay people because we're all sinners and you should look inward and not outward. Mm-hmm. And yet he run one re-election on the backs of demonizing gay marriage. So, like, who, who cares if he's a personally nice guy yeah. on X, Y, or Z issue? I mean, it's just completely irrelevant and mind-boggling. Yes, I think that's right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, moving from Jenna Ellis to a much more august figure you've written about, Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice, the white kind of pop rapper, is friends we've just recently learned from you and others with Don Jr. I realize they've denied even knowing each other, but what did you learn about Vanilla Ice and the Trumps when you wrote this piece? Okay, well, oh God, I mean, this one really does sound like Mad Libs. Okay. Like, it's just a bunch of random words thrown together, and I don't really understand how any of it makes sense in the order in which I'm about to regurgitate it. Okay. But basically, what happened was, last month, I believe, towards the end of December, uh, a story came out in the Palm Beach Post, yep. uh, quoting a man who described himself as a fervent Trump supporter, stating that he was trying to concoct this uh, harebrained scheme to sell Trump this large trailer park <laughs> in or near Palm Beach okay. to see if Trump wanted to convert this to become his eventual President Donald J. Trump presidential library of course. once he left office. Trump has, of course, recently changed his and Melania's permanent address from Manhattan to Palm Beach mm-hmm. but once he leaves office, which makes sense because once Trump is no longer the leader of the free world, there's not going to be very many people who are as friendly to him if they see him outside on the streets of Manhattan versus what would be like if he got a homecoming gathering together at, say, Mar-a-Lago. Right. Or Florida. maybe in the Urals. Right. Or, or the villages. <laughs> exactly. Or the villages. Not far outside of Orlando, Florida. Yes. Love Trump. True. Love him. True. Love him to an insane degree. Yep. So the guy tells the Palm Beach Post that, oh, I got a phone call from my buddy Vanilla Ice, who said he's friends with the Trumps. 
and has spoken to Donald Trump Jr. about it. Hmm. And the Donald Trump Jr. says, you know, I, I think we, including allegedly the president of the United States, could be interested in this. Let's see if we can get the ball rolling on this. So this story, which, again, is some ridiculous Trumpian Mad Lib mishmash of just random pop cultural and political terms. After this comes out, Vanilla Ice tweets that I don't even know Don Jr. I haven't heard anything about presidential library, but if I'm asked, I would be more than happy to help bring it to Florida. Hmm. Shortly after that, a spokesman for Don Jr. tells me that um, something very similar, that they have no idea what the person who was talking about this, the Palm Beach Post, was talking about. Hmm. So it became a very quick, easy end of 2019 Daily Beast story about how Donald Trump Jr. and Vanilla Ice deny involvement with a scheme to turn a Florida trailer park into the Trump presidential library. <laughs> Again, pure Matt lives. Uh, yeah. It's sort of one of those weird Trump world stories where you're kind of typing out the words on your computer and you're confused as to why this is even happening. It feels like some, <laughs> some fever dream that you had after some bacchanal with a sugar high. I don't know. <laughs> we just had Olivia Nuzzi on the show. And I mean, you can imagine she just writing up her latest run in with Rudolph Giuliani is always a time, I think, where you, yeah, you're, you're in a fever dream. Yeah, and a really unpleasant one. Really? <laughs> right. If you manage to not get Ice Ice Baby in your head while you were writing it, you're a better person than I am. Oh, why did you put that back <laughs> in my head? I just drilled it out. Uh. Sorry, sorry. I actually know some more lyrics to it, but I'll spare you. But we do know that there's plenty of reason to believe when they come up stories like about Vanilla Ice. We know the people that Trump has to the White House. We know also that Don Jr.'s if it's what you say, I, I love it, willing to meet with almost anyone, however legal it is or ridiculous it is. But there are some stories you've done even more recently about real brokenness in the Trump brain and the Trump White House, including a moment we haven't talked about yet on the show when Trump retweeted something that named the whistleblower in the Ukraine affair. Alleged whistleblower, yeah. Right. This is the person alleged to be the whistleblower. Yeah. Tell us about that because it happened over the holidays. Sure. Uh, shortly before New Year's Eve. Well, before I get into that, do you have the presence at real Don Trump tweet notification turned on on your cell phone? I do not, for reasons that you just said, because the constant fever dream will kill me. Oh, right. Well, occupational hazard. I yeah. have to. Yes. So whatever time of day he's tweeting or retweeting or bored on the Internet, or whatever, you know, as commander-in-chiefs do. Yeah, executive time. One night, I think it was around 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern time, suddenly my phone dinged, and I realized that the president was going on a retweet binge, and one of the tweets he retweeted was a post from his official campaign war room Twitter account that was basically yelling at uh, Mark Zaid, who's one of the whistleblower's attorneys, mm -hmm. sniping at him, accusing the whistleblower of not actually being a whistleblower. And they link to a Washington Examiner story that has the name of the alleged whistleblower mm -hmm. in the headline. Yes. So I thought about it and I was like, I think this is the first time the president, and this just happened to be a random late December Thursday evening, mm -hmm. has ever tweeted or retweeted a post that has that particular name in mm -hmm. it. And I'm obviously not going to repeat it on your program yep. because the Daily Beast has not independently verified if this guy actually is the whistleblower. So I'm not in the business of repeating the name of something I can't even independently verify as a reporter. Mm -hmm. But uh, this guy's name 
is has been widely circulated, particularly within online conservative media. It's been said a couple of times on Fox News. And as I reported at the Daily Beast back in November, um, this is a name that President Trump has gossiped about with numerous confidants, whether they're, they're working at Fox News or people who work closely with him in the administration. And for weeks, he had been privately bashing the guy, the close associates, and, and has been asking them if they think it's a good idea if he tweeted or retweeted or publicly blurted out the name hmm. and just, you know, just just got it over with. Mm-hmm. And uh, close advisors, including but certainly not limited to Ivanka Trump and White House counsel Pat Cipollone, mm-hmm. had urged the president, look, it's not worth it. Don't do it. Whatever backlash ensues, it, the headache just isn't worth it essentially just wait for like a major media outlet like the New York Times to straight up name the whistleblower just so it's a matter of public record and people can't tie it to you Mm -hmm. or or bash you for doing it. Mm -hmm. And Trump, who does not have a very large penchant for personal restraint on these issues, (laughs) for a much longer period of time than I expected, did not say or tweet or retweet the name publicly at Mm -hmm. all. And it was kind of shocking, not just to me, but several senior people in the administration who are close to the president who were sort of shocked, even back in November, that Trump hadn't just thrown around the name publicly yet. Right. Because that's his style. That's his you know, style. Why not? Well, one of the reasons why not is that Lawrence Tribe and others have said that it might be illegal. He doesn't even respond to pleas from his advisors not to do things because they're against the law often. But that might have been binding on him when he finds himself in so much jeopardy with the impeachment. I don't know what people have decided about the legal status of that tweet. But, you know, while you were writing this right when it was hot off the press, did it occur to you that this was yet another one of Trump's crimes in broad daylight? Uh, obviously, that's a question for a legal expert or a lawyer. I'm yeah. not sure if this is a settled issue, and I'm not sure if even uh, the president did kept saying the name in public. I'm not sure if it would be a crime if um, because there is sort of a uh, legal gray area on yeah. what exactly these whistleblower protections actually protect and who can do what. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the president has a very wide swath of powers and privileges when it comes to Uh, what is or isn't classified when Mm -hmm. it comes to hypersensitive American information. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the name of, again, the alleged whistleblower, Mm -hmm. um, I I feel like a doll with a pull string having to keep repeating the word alleged, alleged, alleged. (laughs) I want to make it very clear that according to my reporting, the president of the United States is not getting this through any secretive intel channels Mm -hmm. or anything coming from the United States intelligence community. This isn't something that as the most powerful man in the world with all of these vast powers um, at his disposal and at his fingertips is getting. Mm -hmm. He learned this name because people who work for him printed out conservative media clippings from websites such as Breitbart Mm -hmm. and Real Clear Politics that had the dude's name in it. And that's how the president came to learn this. And this is how he started gossiping about it with people close to him and asking his uh, top advisors if it was a good idea from to parade the name around. Again, he, he, like we sort of become numb to this because it's President Trump and his brain is hardwired to fast food restaurants and conservative media outlets mm-hmm. 24-7. And it's just sort of what we've come to expect from the president of the United States. But at least to me, it still has not stopped sounding weird 
that the president gets this information just from reading a clip on Breitbart or seeing a talking head for one segment on Fox and Friends or some mm-hmm. other Fox program. Mm-hmm. And he's the most powerful person on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. Like, if he wanted to, he could just get a trove of classified information and declassify a tranche of documents yeah. that could potentially shed some light on this information. But that's absolutely not where he's getting his information. That's not where he gets his research. He's doing it from the same way that your um, late boomer parent or grandparent <laughs> is doing it. Right. Just, yeah. just from getting their information from right-wing websites or right-wing channels, which, again, is, is remarkably fascinating to me and another way in which I think points to why this president is so in touch with the Republican base, because he thinks, talks, and gets information the way that you'd expect a stereotypical Republican base voter would. And he does it very proudly. Yes. And sometimes Breitbart even looks mainstream compared to the stuff he was retweeting over the holidays, reaching deeper into the sort of QAnon world than he had before. It is also true that when he retweets something, it it enters the bloodstream of the Daily Beast and the Washington Post and everyone else. Right, exactly. Like, it's one of these things where... Um, You remember what it was like back in the mid-Obama era, like Donald Trump says something moronic on a Fox News broadcast Mm -hmm. when he called into Fox and Friends, or he tweets something insanely idiotic or racist, and you would get upset if your editor made you cover it. It was one of those things where it's like, this is beneath the, like, why don't, why aren't you making me write up something Wayne Allen Root said (laughs) uh, on like a a Saturday afternoon broadcast or something? Like, it it was one of the, like, you roll your eyes, like, why the hell do we have to pay attention to this guy? And now we're in a situation where if the leader of the free world tweets or retweets something patently insane, Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get on your high horse and be like, oh, yeah, why, uh, like, why are you covering this? You're giving him the attention he craves. He knows exactly what he's doing. OK, yeah, that's all true. But he's the most powerful person on the face of the earth who has access to, like, nuclear launch codes and mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can't get around the newsworthiness of it. And there's sort of a weird balancing act that reporters who want to cover the era objectively have to do. Going into the campaign, and this is, my, this is my last question for you, there are all kinds of weird mutations of the disinformation we saw in 2016. The technology for doing deep fakes has evolved and the willingness of the president and his men and women to recirculate complete lies on their huge platforms has also expanded. So if when we're looking for more disinformation, it's it's going to be more and potentially overwhelming. My friend Molly McHugh says, you know, you don't predict the next wave of information war. It, you know, it could be an H-bomb this time. And Carol Cadwallader has said in England, in Britain, the disinformation was at least 40 percent more than it was during the last Brexit campaign during this one, during the Boris Johnson election. And it's been impossible 
to predict and head off. All that said, I do think American journalists, including yourself, are on guard against this kind of thing. For instance, well, with this whistleblower thing, when Trump circulates the name of the whistleblower, you all don't immediately pursue it to figure out if this is indeed the whistleblower and then do a story on the whistleblower as named by Donald Trump. Instead, you do this thing about why is he pushing out this sensitive and unfact-checked information without quoting the information. That's a, That seems like a very good way to do it. And now we have this Biden video. I don't know. I didn't see the doctored video, but that circulated and instantly the Twitter folks who have like the reflexes of hummingbirds about this stuff pointed out that it was doctored and they pointed to the real video of Joe Biden. So I'm sorry to say, but it's just going to be another year of us all like just on this powder keg that's always about to blow and we've got to be the ones constantly diffusing it. Are you geared up? Are your cortisol levels intact? Because you're going to be doing this on points small and large. Well, not to sound too, I don't know what the proper adjective here would be, but not to sound too incredibly nihilistic about it. But my opinion for a long time has been whatever presidential campaign you're covering, whether it's Democrat or Republican or whatever um, year it is or presidential election cycle it is in the modern era, you, of course, always have to be on guard. There's always going to be rat fuckers and um, people who push out disinformation or things that are apparently dishonest to try to screw over another candidate or benefit their candidate. There's always going to be foreign interests who are going to want to put their finger on the scale one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Certainly no one who was a stranger to the 2012 campaign, 2008 campaign, or 2004 or 2000 campaign would allege that there was any dirt whatsoever of having to sort information from misinformation and to make sure that as a political reporter, you don't get played Mm -hmm. by one candidate's team or another. So at the end of the day, when it comes to like the tools in the toolbox and the way we try to report well in the Trump era, I don't think the calculus or the methods change necessarily. Mm. It's just that it just feels like a bit of an accelerant has Mm -hmm. been thrown onto some of the elements. And the way that not just the people around Trump, but Trump himself wields the megaphone and spreads all these different lies and falsehoods, there's something extra about it. Mm -hmm. He's more pornographic about it. He's more uh, perverse about it. He's more ostentatious and has more reality TV spectacle and flair laced into it. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the end of the day, and again, I don't want to sound too squishy on this because Mm. Trump is different and more um, 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 flamboyant in a lot of ways in this regard. But if as a reporter, you approach it through the lens of, oh, politicians lie, Mm. I think you'll be okay. (laughs) And again, not to drill too deep on this, because I think this is a philosophical question that begs a much longer conversation on this. Mm -hmm. But this sort of goes back to when people talk about the dramatic low of where the American general public sees the um, traditional national political media right now. Mm -hmm. Whenever people pull the trust in media in national whatever polls, it always ranks punishingly low. I think consistently below Congress, if that's even possible. Right. Now, we could get into the nuance that everybody hates Congress, but everybody loves their congressman or congresswoman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the same way that everybody hates the quote-unquote media, but everybody loves the media they get. If mm-hmm. you hate the mainstream liberal media, 
you're going to love Fox News or you're going to love Breitbart or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you're a liberal and you're asked, do you hate the media? You're probably talking about a lot of it, but you're going to also be addicted to something like Rachel Maddow Mm -hmm. or Chris Hayes or something like that. Yeah. So when it comes to, as us reporters dealing with that, Mm -hmm. and a lot of us trying to take on what we consider the constant lying and misconduct and corruption and racism of something like the Trump era, and having the American people, by and large, either not giving a damn or actively distrusting us and thinking that we're the ones who are the liars— I actually don't think that is necessarily the fault of Trump or his minions. All they did was merely exploited a fertile environment for distrust in the media that has been there for a long, long time. So I think one of the tools in the toolbox in terms of combating that and trying to sort in the American public interest what is bad information and what is good and correct information, not lies, Mm -hmm. it behooves your average political reporter and reporter covering Trump to realize that and realize that whatever distrust your average reader may have in your work or your TV broadcast, mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, that's on us. Mm-hmm. It's actually not on President Trump or any of the idiots who you surround himself with. It's our individual job to prove to readers why they should respect our work and why they should keep coming back to it as reliable information. Yeah. And that is something that was the case before Trumpism and will be obviously around long after he's gone. Has he made the situation better? Of course not. Yep. But he, he, he's a symptom, not a cause, if that makes sense. My guest today has been Aswan Soupsong. He's a White House reporter at The Daily Beast. Thanks so much for being here, Swin. Thank you. Anytime. So that's it for today's show. What did you think? You can give it to us straight. Find us on Twitter and rise above the noise. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Kick off the new year by becoming a Slate Plus member. Journalism really is kind of endangered trying to find new models to stay alive. And one of them is the membership model. That's the one that works best. And today's your day to get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. The price has not gone up in 2020. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by the peerless Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.